You can support the Double Loop Podcast by contributing at patreon.com slash double loop podcast. Thank you to our supporters, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. And Glenn, um, I am all the way over here in Paris, France. Oh, well, I think, well, technically in Villancourt, uh, France. Uh, I guess a suburb just south and a little west of, of Paris itself, but, uh, you know, close enough to be on the metro line. And I, I thought I could tell you were in France because, of course, I could see your underpants. <laughs> oh, Man, that is that might be the worst. I know. Thing we've I know. We've That's ever like one of yours. On the, <laughs> well, my feet are just killing me. I was at the Louvre earlier today, and uh, I spent well, a few days just walking around, and the Louvre just kind of blew my mind with just how much stuff is in there and how just big it is. It, I mean, yeah, it's amazing. Bigly big. <laughs> yeah. uh, I heard I heard read somewhere that if you'd spend just 30 seconds looking at every single thing that was in there, it would take you six weeks. Wow. To go the... uh, that, that feels about right. I mean, you're I mean, right. It's just chock, chock full of amazing masterpieces. And, and I have spent uh, just practically a full day just in some of those galleries. Well, after three, three hours, I was, I was hungry and my feet hurt. Cause I've, this is also my third day just walking around Paris. So, but I'll tell you more about that later after I get actually to the conference that I'm headed to uh, in a couple of days. First off, I wanted to talk about uh, Patreon. So for a few, well, a few years now, at the beginning of each episode, there's a little bumper that uh, asks uh, listeners to uh, to support our little podcast over on Patreon. Um, and I want to uh, give a quick shout out to Heather, who's actually just uh, now coming up on her third year of sponsoring us on uh, Patreon. Uh, but also a couple of new people that have uh, joined in with sponsors, uh, Victor and Kenneth. So thank you very much to you guys oh. uh, for supporting us. Thanks, guys. Um, it'll, uh, you know, if, if you're listening right now and you've ever been thinking, you know, I, uh, I've always wanted to, to, you know, buy Eric or Glenn a beer uh, at the next conference. Well, do so now. Even just a dollar a month helps us out. And These days it's going towards bandwidth and headphones and microphones. <laughs> But it's it's a metaphorical beer. Exactly, it really does help out, and um, we want you know more and more of our users to uh, you know be patrons of the show in that way. Uh, along those same lines, uh, since we are now five years into this little experiment, Glenn, which is really hard to believe, we we have started to archive uh, some of our older episodes. You may, if you go to SoundCloud or even just with your iTunes, whatever app that you use, if you start going back and looking for some of the older episodes, going back three, four, or five years, uh, you may not be able to find them right away. But the way that you find them is that you sign up on Patreon. So even just a dollar a month, uh, you'll have access to that whole back catalog that we have. Uh, all the new episodes will continue to be for free and you know easily findable on whatever app that you're using. But for the older episodes, uh, that's how you're going to be able to find those. And, and we have some plans, too, coming up to add additional content uh, for the Patreon subscribers. 
where we're going to have additional training materials and other videos and things specifically for those folks. So we want to make it a little more of an experience, make it worth your while. And uh, again, as we experiment a little bit with this podcast model and, and what we want to do with this, uh, we'll be notifying listeners in the upcoming weeks and months. Absolutely. So that'll be you're coming down very soon along along the pipeline. After Glenn and I get back from some trips, uh, you'll see some more stuff up there. Uh, right now, just step one was uh, that, that old back catalog of episodes. Now, Glenn, I wanted to tell you a little story here again before we get into uh, wrapping up the staircase episodes. Um, so you've, you've seen that I've done for a few years now uh, fingerprint-related artwork. Yes, uh, I have some mainly, of it. Yeah, you, actually, that's right, you have some of it. Yeah. Uh, and that's mainly actually working with my bro- brother's metal shop at laser cut metal in the shape of someone's fingerprints. But uh, um, I took a break for a couple of years, but now I'm kind of back into uh, designing more stuff. And uh, earlier this year, I got an email to put in an order uh, for uh, this lady's son. So finally got that all done, sent out and, and delivered. And I had gotten the impression that it was difficult for her to get her son's fingerprints. So we had a lot of back and forth explanation on kind of the best way to do it. Uh, but she was having some problems getting it clear without getting it smudged. And she then sent me an email and some pictures uh, of the, the final piece and uh, a picture of her son um, with it. So she was uh, very interested in forensics and criminology, uh, you know, returned to school to study that. But when she had her third child, she kind of had to set that aside because uh, he had some health problems. So her son was uh, born with uh, trisomy 11 and monosomy 20. Uh, Essentially, there was um, a pair of chromosomes where just part of like one of the legs uh, got switched between these two chromosomes. So then chromosome 11, he ended up with three copies of, but then chromosome 20 on, again, just this tiny portion of it, only one copy of. And dozens of surgeries Uh, later, uh, he's 13. He has quadriplegia, is legally blind and deaf, but is a great gift to their family. And they wanted, you know, something special and unique, as unique as his conditions all are, uh, to celebrate his uh, his birthday. And reading here her email and then reading the story that she has online, kind of talking about, you know, her son, uh, just really touched my heart. Of, yeah, wow, of, that's uh, crazy. Yeah, of just this, this amazing family and this amazing kid who... Uh, now has you know his fingerprint uh, in in metal. I, I just I really hope that uh, you know their whole family uh, you know enjoys that. And um, uh, I just wanted to kind of share that here on the show. Like I said, it really touched my heart and sounds like an, just an extra special kid and an extra special family. Yeah, that's that's really cool, Eric. Um, uh, mazel Tov and a mitzvah on you. It is well, a Jewish is it, high holiday, it, so I just in 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 reference to. Uh, okay. That's great, man. That's uh, that's really cool. Well, thank you very much. Well, let's let's wrap up our uh, discussion of the staircase now. So uh, we had just finished off the last episode with an interview with Bart Epstein. Um, we've had a lot of feedback uh, on that episode from online. Uh, a lot of people that are new to our podcast. So if you're listening, you know, because of our our interview uh, with Bart, you know, welcome and uh, you know, thank you for for joining us here. Glad that we can you know bring out our uh, connection. Uh, through Bart and through you, Glenn, to uh, to this case, and, and hope that a lot of new information uh, came out to people that have really been interested in that staircase documentary. 
Yeah, and the hope here was to just put a bow on everything. That, you know, the first couple of episodes we looked at uh, the overall scene and some of the drama behind the documentary. The second episode was about the forensic evidence, our interpretation of it, uh, which then set up, of course, for Bart Epstein's talking about the actual examination that he and Terry Labor performed uh, at evidence from the scene and what their conclusions were that were pretty unequivocal that these bloodstain patterns were not consistent in any way whatsoever with someone who experienced just a simple fall. That there were these impact sites and these impact sites in the air that could not have come from anything against the wall or the stairs. The the patterns were much more, and I hate using the word consistent, but much more consistent along the lines of a beating or something like that. And that the, the more, upwards, Much more indicative of a beating. Uh, indicative. Great. Great. Good word. And that the the upward stains projected into the crotch of the shorts and then, you know, these other things, you know, with the potential cleanup and voids and things that Bart talked about. So the hope here was to just talk a little bit about the fact that ultimately watchers of the Netflix series will know that Peterson was basically released from jail when they started to investigate Deaver's background. And we just we touched on this, you know, just a little bit in the previous episodes that Deaver's work, the scene uh, the scene, the the attendant forensic scientist at the scene, he didn't falsify any evidence. He didn't dry lab, but he did report results and testify in a manner that was clearly biased and clearly um, diminished results that went against essentially the prosecution's case. He was not neutral. He was not forthcoming with results. And the one thing that the Netflix series explores. Of course, there are some bloodstains that at the scene uh, were tested with, I think, pheno or some sort of presumptive test that indicated blood. But then later, uh, once in the laboratory, were confirmed or were basically confirmed not to be blood. And he did not divulge that during his testimony or in any of his reports. And they found that this happened in numerous cases. And eventually he was dismissed from his laboratory, the state lab in North Carolina, and uh, they, uh, you know, looked at many of his cases and vacated some of them, including this. And as the series explored, now we have this opportunity where he's been in jail for 10 years and the state has to decide whether or not to retry him at this point. Yeah, it, you know, one of the big ones was just this, the exaggeration of how many cases he had been, been involved with and the extent of his involvement uh, in all those cases. Doesn't really seem to matter to most juries if, if you've testified twice or a hundred times, or if you've worked, you know, fifty cases versus twenty-five. The problem is just exaggerating it. If you just say what it is, then then everything's fine. It, it's it's confusing, kind of why he would you know, overstate all that. One of the comments I saw online was that it was too bad that Devers was the one that testified in the original trial and not Epstein and, and Labor. Uh, because if that had been the case, you know, Peterson would probably still be in jail now. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And, you know, I think we heard from Bart uh, that, you know, why the prosecution decided not to. It wouldn't have added at that time. You know, they had no reason to suspect anything with Devers or that this right. would happen or that, you know, I mean, even, yes, the Internet existed back then, but uh, it, it, just things weren't as accessible as they are today. And, you know, these things are now coming back to, to haunt people. And 
it, it just it, it wasn't foreseeable at that time. So I mean, I can understand their decision at that time. But let's get to the the modern decision. Uh, you know, those prosecutors were no longer in that office. And they have a new set of prosecutors. In fact, even, you know, they showed one woman, and I can't remember yep. her name, um, African-American lady who was uh, handling the case, but the family didn't want her to handle it, and they petitioned for her not to handle it. Uh, and then later, she's gone, and then they have a new prosecutor, Jim Dornfried, who's the prosecutor on the case, and he's the one who's going to handle that. And, you know, in in that, he has to... You know, really take a step back and look at what uh, the chances are of uh, Peterson being convicted again. There is now this documentary that basically the entire jury pool has seen. Yeah, I mean, potentially. I wasn't really wasn't really aware of the show uh, until more recently, but I'm sure right locally in that area, everybody has seen it and has an opinion on the show versus. Yes. You know the the actual trial when it was covered. and and real and realistically, I do. I mean, not you know, knowing more about the case, I and mean, do we really think he'd be able to get first degree murder that this was premeditated? Because I mean, while there are certain aspects of it, right? Let's just say it, it gets downgraded to second degree murder, and what's that? Fifteen years, maybe maximum. He's already served ten years. Is it worth True. what could be a million dollar trial with all of these experts and you know, court fees and various people coming in that goes on forever? And then, all, you know, just all of this to the community to get what an extra few years out of someone without a criminal history who could potentially be paroled. And you begin the way, you know, the, the cost and benefit to society at this point. And and what if, what if, what if he's you know found not guilty right. at this point? There's there's that whole risk right. too. But you bring up an interesting point, so I want to ask you uh, directly, knowing everything that you know about the forensics of it and the the rest of the background story. Um, not quite sure how to phrase this, but if you were sure. the prosecutor, would you have uh, put in for first degree or second degree? Um, basically, do you think that he planned this ahead of time, or do you think that you know, she basically found yep. the emails from the escort, and there was an argument, and he just kind of went I, off and killed I, her. Um, yeah, we, which, there's no which... there's no evidence to me to really show that it's first degree premeditated. One could argue that if there was a beating, and then a stop, and then a cleanup, and more beating, then there's your premeditated, obviously, right there. But... It, is the evidence strong enough to show that? And obviously there's controversy around that. I mean, that was, you know, discussed quite a bit by Bart and that was discussed by, you know, in the, the series about what happened at some point. I don't know. It, I, I think it's too controversial. It's too ambiguous. I, I, I think it's too much of a, I mean, sure. I mean, if you're the prosecutor, you charge it, but you also charge potentially second, you know, secondary. Right. I, yeah, I, I, I don't know that you're going to get that. I just don't at this point. I'm initially, of course, yes, but I don't know at this point with all of the ambiguity and concern around some of the evidence, I, I, I can understand their decision. But but beyond all the, the controversy, do you do you think you planned you know, things no. out ahead of time? Uh, no. Or did that beating it came back? Or do you think it was all just one one time and he just kept going over and over and over again until she was either dead or yeah. on close enough that she was going to die because of, of everything. And so, yeah, I think I agree as well that 
I, I don't think there was anything there just with the motive that makes sense and the evidence that's there. And, you know, I, I'd have to agree that I think second degree murder, it makes more sense. And, you know, there's the evidence that obviously there to back that up. Uh, so that's, that's a whole good point of why, why not to bring this all together. Uh, in the documentary, in some of the later episodes after they went back, kind of the second chunk of episodes, uh, and then you know, more recently the third chunk that just was filmed just about a year and a half ago. So Rudolph you know, goes in and tries to, it seems like, tries to get to negotiate this plea deal where he's, he's basically out of the case, not involved anymore, stepping back. In the show, he says he can't take losing this case again because how involved and emotionally involved and personal it became yeah. for him. But also part of it is Peterson doesn't really have any money anymore to pay a high-priced attorney. I'm not faulting Rudolph for that. That's just you know the reality of it. First, the prosecution says no, no, no. And then all of a sudden, uh, they decide to make an off for this Alford plea uh, where Peterson would essentially not admit guilt, but plead guilty by acknowledging that the state has enough evidence to convict him without you know technically admitting uh, that he did it and then the deal would be that uh, he would be convicted in this new trial ending in a plea deal to the time that he's already served right uh, and then be released there's a lot of emotion behind that uh, that decision uh, on on both sides and you see in the documentary the emotion from Kathleen's sisters uh, in just wanting this this guy to, you know, be in prison for the rest of his life. And then there's all the emotions from um, Michael Peterson's kids of wanting him to to be out, not be in prison anymore. And you even see the conflict within Michael Peterson of wanting to be out, but not wanting to admit to anything uh, or to make that guilty plea. Right. Uh, so there's there's a, there's a lot of drama in, in that decision. Uh, you know, when it comes down to it, he he does make that plea. There's there's some wheelings and dealings in the wording behind what Michael Peterson is willing to say, and uh, he eventually makes a couple of compromises and then and then pleads guilty. You're you know you're you're absolutely right, and 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 that's that. And I I think ultimately you know even viewers watching. I, th- I think as, as a viewer, I'm, of course, hoping that they're going to go to trial knowing about the Bard Epstein and Terry Labor evidence and what might be done with that. But it, it, it seemed like the appropriate choice. And I think um, there were no winners here. <laughs> Nobody wins in this outcome. No. And I, I, I think ultimately it's probably the most appropriate decision for uh, for everyone prosecution defense and of course peterson yeah the uh, the show to kind of go into some of these later episodes i think one of the more interesting parts and you mentioned this you know back in previous episodes as well was uh the interview with the judge uh, in this case and some of his thoughts looking back now on whether the previous death from Germany and also Michael Peterson's uh, affairs with these uh, male escorts should have been allowed in the trial. He seems to to have some regret there, which is pretty unique for a judge to say. Usually they don't let that kind of stuff out where he really did regret allowing in the information from the Germany. But 
I mean, it is pretty central to their case and their theory. I mean, again, I'd be curious to hear from legal scholars on this. I don't know that it was inappropriate. It may have had some prejudicial aspects, but I don't know that it was completely inappropriate, given they're trying to establish a history and a motive here. I, I think the the motive and you know his relationships with these with these escorts was absolutely appropriate to let in. I mean that that it goes directly to the motive and the prosecution's theory of uh, Kathleen discovering these emails, uh, this entire thing leading to the argument, which leads to uh, the attack and her death. I think looking back now, how that was used by the prosecution especially yes. looking at it through 2018 eyes uh, yes. was was maybe a little over the top and prejudicial and, and maybe the judge could have uh, you know curtailed how uh, the prosecution was relaying this evidence, especially uh, the lady that um, was just going on and on and on about how how disgusting uh, this whole thing and not normal for a marriage, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you, you know she passed away recently, right? Just a couple I weeks ago. I did hear that over the summer, yeah. I saw that on the, the message boards on Reddit about uh, the Staircase documentary. Uh. But the Germany thing, I don't know. that Even with the theory of, of how the argument started and the attack happened, it, it seems strange to me that he would be thinking about describing the, the, her death as a fall down the staircase and remembering back to this time, that one I th- seems more questionable. Like, um, and I can see both the arguments on both sides of, of why this would be prejudicial or not. Because, you know, was he really thinking about that uh, as like, oh, I'll try to cover it up just like this time? Or you know, was it more of a heat of the moment kind of, kind of thing where you can't really then think about all of that? All you know, real quickly when this whole attack happens, I don't know. That's that's uh, one that I'm I'm still kind of back and forth on agreeing with the the judge now in his questioning of letting that information in. Um, and sure. uh, you know, from like you said, from a legally legal perspective, you know, I, I don't know. Just from my lay perspective on those legal issues, uh, that one I'm kind of back and forth on. Yeah, I'd be very interested in hearing from legal scholars or people with legal opinions about admissibility. Because, I mean, I agree with you, that one seems more ambiguous. But, well, I mean, who knows what would have happened if they had done the retrial. Yeah, one question we'll never know. Yeah, about the only other thing that I thought was interesting from the... um, from the later episodes was, again, the crazy elements of this case that... You had this defense team and this attorney, this Mike K that uh, Rudolph had um, recommended for this and was handling all this and was, you know, was a really good defense attorney and had done all the preparation on everything. And then as they're going to trial and starting to do these hearings again, he has a stroke and you know, has a heart attack. And so this second chair defense yeah. attorney, the, the lady had, you know, had to take over. And again, just these amazing little twists to this case. It's it's such a dramatic series. And I think just putting the forensic evidence aside, it's the, it, it's, it's the drama. It's the drama that keeps pulling you back in and the crazy twists and turns. Well, absolutely. And I think that's, like I said, when I first watched it, you know, we hadn't talked about all the forensic stuff that you knew ahead of time. Uh, all this right. the information 
that you had known from you know working with uh, with Bart and training with Bart. I went into it blind, really not knowing anything about the case, and I came out just right in the middle uh, on the fence. And I know there's lots of people that come out of watching that show really on Michael Peterson's side, you know, thinking that it really was a fall. A lot of that because is because of, like you said, all that drama, and it really does take looking at the the hard forensic evidence and pushing past all of that, you know, that human element that emotionally tugs on you different directions. If you're a jury member to make that call, you know, if you're going to say guilty or not guilty. And, you know, I completely agree. And you know where there is no confusion? The love from our sponsors. And I'd like to mention one of them right now. Uh, Idemia, the global leader in augmented identity. Idemia has earned its place as a long-standing strategic partner to the most prestigious law enforcement agencies in the world. Their leading technology has combined digital and cloud expertise to bring unparalleled efficiency and next-generation user experiences to their customers. Because authorities are tasked with identifying risks and threats, solving crimes in less time than ever before, and working with limited budgets and resources, Idemia has launched a new product called Case Aphis. It's a portable latent print examination tool supported by the full power of Idemia's flagship MBIS matching algorithms. CaseAphis enables latent print examiners to solve complex and difficult cases faster by searching latent prints collected at a crime scene against known prints on a case-by-case basis. It provides an alternative to examiners who would manually compare a set of latent prints against a known set of persons and suspects within a case apart from their APHIS database. This improves case efficiency and reduces erroneous exclusions. Eric, I have one of these and I can tell you from first-hand experience that's exactly what it does. Interested in solving crimes faster? Learn more about Idemia and Case Aphis by contacting us at info.usa at Idemia, that's I-D-E-M-I-A dot com. All right, well, thank you to Idemia. And um, just to finish off uh, this episode, we're kind of bouncing around just making sure we finish off all the topics we wanted to talk about. Uh, we wanted to cover uh, you know, some of the mistakes that we saw from the prosecution side that uh, even despite all the overwhelming evidence that, that they had, eventually worked against the prosecution, which, you know, again, like we had just said, led to a lot of drama uh, in, the, in the show, but also caused headaches for the prosecution that they didn't really need. And I think the, the biggest among them is in all the different ways that the blowpoke came into things for this series. I don't know, I guess it seemed like a great idea at the time, but in hindsight was probably the worst decision. It was the, hey, yeah, let's let's let OJ try on that glove and see what happens moment of this trial. Not only did they eventually find it later on and show that there were pictures of the blowpoke that the police had taken at the time, so basically almost definitely wasn't the murder weapon, Every aspect of the trial just seemed to focus on that. You know, even Deaver had made an yes. opinion that one of the wounds was the same shape as the end of the blowpoke, which uh, in the last episode, you know, Bart Epstein was not an appropriate decision to make. Uh, but in, in all these other aspects, it just seemed to go wrong. At every point where the blowpoke came up in the story, they tried to put in the blowpoke into like every part of the story. It just it just yeah. went wrong for him whenever it came up. Yeah, I mean, again, like you said, in, in hindsight, particularly once they found it. And I've never seen a case where defense, during the middle of the trial, 
is able to, you know, it was very dramatic. I mean, Perry Mason, like, you know, at the last minute, bringing in the witness that, you know, that uh, impeaches the, you know, the witness on the stand or whatever. So, uh, well, again, you know, hindsight being being what it is. We always know that in these cases, there is this need to identify the murder weapon, find the murder weapon, find the murder weapon. And I think in this case, they, like you said, they gravitated towards what they thought it could be. But to this day, I don't think we'll, you know, I don't think we know what it is. I think in Bart's episode, we discussed some interesting ideas. You know, could the stairs themselves have been, you know, the murder weapon? And that's why we've never found the murder weapon. I, I'm not sure. Right. And yeah, he, he seemed, he was pretty clear that that couldn't have been the case. At the very least, it had to have been the stairs and his his hands, yeah. his fists. Yeah. Um, right. You know, there, there's still a, a strong likelihood that it was some sort of, you know, object to hit her over the head with, uh, that would cause those, those, you know, severe lacerations. And, yeah, exactly. um, but they were just so focused on finding something that was solid enough to cause those lacerations, but light enough not to damage the brain or the skull. Maybe if they had stuck with more of a nebulous, kind of weapon that that was you know hidden and never found and not focused in on this one particular item you know things may have kind of turned out differently but maybe that's a a lesson for you know other prosecutions uh, that may you know be looking to learn lessons from how this case was handled so one of the other things they discuss in the last episodes the part two episodes they they focused on the non-testing of Kathleen's clothes. You know, they kept coming back to Kathleen's clothes had never been tested. And, you know, they they went into that quite a bit and that the clothes were commingled and in boxes, you know, in these boxes and ripped open and, you know, not separated. And so this is one of the things where they couldn't go back and look at potential DNA testing. There was a lot of focus on that. Do you recall that in the, the later episodes? Yeah, yeah, that's... That kind of fit with my experience uh, at, at my lab, which you know, when you have presumably the victim's blood covering things, they're just not going to test that because it's pretty obvious what is going to be found. Right. Uh, so it's not certainly not out of the ordinary, but again, creates this, especially for lay people, this void of what do you mean they didn't test them? What do you mean they didn't look for someone else's blood? What do you mean they didn't? you know, look for potentially a third person, you know, blood that, you know, someone not in the home, someone, you know, unidentified. Right, right. Unless there's some sort of obvious area that, where the blood pattern looks different or the stain looks different or something looks different. Uh, but if it's all just one big soaked shirt or pants, then, then yeah. Yeah, wait till we get to the Sam Shepard case, and exactly what you said will become so relevant. It's it's identifying the stain that looks out of place as potentially coming from a different individual. That will come up again later. Okay, okay. I gotta I gotta watch my old Harrison Ford movies again. Uh, <laughs> uh, not exactly, but yeah, okay. You should go ahead and watch them anyway. Uh, they tried to point out as potentially an error, and yes, it looks a little ambiguous and sketchy but not to us because that you know not everything always gets tested at these scenes could they have right, should they have uh, this is you know for other people to have decided I, I won't armchair quarterback that at the very least they should have stored the clothing um, properly separately so that like you were saying things 
can't commingle, and if testing you know, is now required now that it's become like this kind of case, that it's still possible right. to go back and do that. That's, you know, that's at the very least. But again, from our perspective, working in crime labs, it's, it's fairly common for DNA analysts to only test a limited portion of the evidence uh, in, in any case. Right. Now, you know, we alluded to this, and this is probably a good place to end. The owl theory, Eric, you made a little joke about who <laughs> may have killed Kathleen Peterson. Uh, why don't we get into that? I mean, this is something that listeners, you if you don't know about this, because it's not mentioned in the documentary, you simply have to go online and Google owl, owl, O-W-L, owl, the owl theory. <laughs> There is a theory that some people think are, is not that crazy that an owl somehow got in the house and a raptor, bird of prey, owl, is what actually killed Kathleen Peterson. Care to comment on that, Eric? Well, okay, so the theory, yeah, the theory is basically the owl gets kind of tingled in her hair and starts like scratching and dragging claws and opened up all these wounds and you know she bleeds a ton and then she hits her head as she falls and then maybe wakes up after bleeding out for a while and hits her head again and to kind of get these impact points on the stair rails or near the steps and then the owl is the point of impact from you know in space in space right well okay so the, the this whole theory seems to have originated from an accounting of two quote microscopic owl feathers in her, in the like clumps of her hair that was in her hand, I want to say, I I can't imagine an owl attack causing that much damage, where the only evidence of the presence of an owl is two again microscopic feathers. You know, I so, see. So what if the actual murder weapon was either a taxidermied owl, and she was beaten to death with an <laughs> with an actual owl? Or <laughs> some okay. sort of a walking stick or something. Yeah, you know, they're they're kind of in a wooded area. Maybe there is some kind of walking stick that got something in from the outside. So what if it was an actual transfer from perhaps the actual murder weapon? Again, just being microscopic in nature and nothing macroscopic enough to be seen as an evidence I mean, think. Look at all that blood. I mean, look at the the wounds and the blood that was in yeah. that stairwell. Now imagine yeah. a, a a raptor attack flailing around, multiple wounds. It's not like whew, he was in and he's out. You know, this is stuck in the hair. Right. And I can only imagine the cloud of feathers that would have erupted from yeah. this yeah. this epic battle, and then sticking to all the just gallons of blood that is coating this stairwell yeah. to then only have found two microscopic hairs. Sorry. It's just not plausible with the evidence that's there uh, that this is you know what killed Kathleen Peterson with what must have happened for an owl to have caused all this stuff. There would have been a, a cloud of feathers, much more evidence than just the two microscopic ones that were found. Yeah. I'm with you. You're with me. Okay. Well, good. <laughs> I agree on that one. Although I, I do like my taxidermied owl theory. Yeah, all the all the owl theorists haven't talked about taxidermy. I mean, if a house is fancy enough to have a blowpoke, then surely it's fancy <laughs> enough to have a taxidermied owl. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. Well, we're going to close this episode out and, and thank you to all of our listeners that have been keeping up with us uh, over the past five years and also to all our new listeners that have come in specifically because of our discussion of the staircase. Uh, it's great having you and hope that you stick around through more fingerprint discussions and then also more discussions about specific cases like this. Uh, Glenn has been really, really, you know, laying down the hints hard that we're going to uh, jump into the fugitive case, uh, otherwise known as the Sam Shepard case. Uh, that was then the basis of the TV show, which then was in know, theory, roughly in, in theory, theory. There, and then there is an urban legend to this component that we'll discuss. And then the TV show, even loosely more adapted into the movie, uh, The Fugitive with Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones, a movie I loved when I was growing up. I think by that time had gotten so far away from the original story as to be basically unrecognizable. But uh, that'd be an interesting one for us to tackle here in the next few months at some point uh, after we you know, get to some fingerprint episodes out uh, back out under our belts. And, and to listeners that want to contribute to this discussion a little bit about the staircase, you know, this would be a really great time to send us questions and, you know, something yeah. we can follow up like we did with uh, Making the Murderer. We can come back to an episode later where we can address questions from you guys as these episodes are starting to air now. So, you know, please feel free to reach out to us with uh, questions, concerns, your theories, your comments. We love to hear from them and we can address them on air. And that's uh, Eric at RayForensics.com or Glenn at EliteForensicServices.com. Uh, we also did promise that if you had any questions for us uh, to pass along to Bart Epstein, uh, we could definitely do that for you as well. So if any other questions for Bart were to come up, uh, you can send them to us. Uh, you can also look for me on Reddit. Uh, I'm Double Loop on Reddit. And uh, here in the next week or two, as soon as I get back from France, uh, I'm going to schedule a time to do an AMA, you know, get Glenn into Reddit as well, get him a user uh, account and show him what that's all about. Uh, an AMA is an ask me anything. And uh, so we'll set that up so that you know, we can actually have a live kind of mini discussion on, on Reddit about some aspects of this case. So that's how to contact us. If you're looking for latent print training, uh, as always, you can go to my website, rayforensics.com or to Glenn's web, uh, website, and then also onto ronsmithandassociates.com for more information on Glenn's classes. Uh, we got some coming up here soon, so definitely uh, head to those websites to get more information on all of that. Listen to us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, and <laughs> follow us on Twitter. Give us those five-star ratings on, especially on Apple. I guess that's a, one of the big ones that, that where rankings you know, matter a lot definitely give us those five-star ratings for uh, for all those and on twitter we're double loop pod at double loop pod and uh, we're posting lots of stuff you know becca helping us out uh, keeping up to date on all of that and uh, there's there's been lots of cool discussions and uh and some you know funny stuff as well uh, now and then so the opinions we express belong to us and not to any agency we work for uh, but with that we will bid you guys goodbye and talk to you next time Bye, everybody. Have a good week.